Our text this morning is Philippians 2, 6 through 9. Think of this in regards to Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. This is the word of the Lord. Let's be to God. You guys can take a seat. Thanks, Sarah. <clears throat> well, good morning again, everybody. Uh, my name is Sean. I'm the lead pastor, teaching pastor here for Redemption Peoria. If I don't know you, welcome. Um, if you are new, just be aware, Redemption Church is one church. Nine different congregations, and each congregation is elder-led and lead pastor-led. And please know, notice, we said congregation. It's not like we're adamantly opposed to campus language or anything like that, but we try to use congregation language intentionally because we feel like um, each congregation being uh, lead pastor-led and elder-led is a big part of our philosophy and our ecclesiology, as, as it's called. So you might have questions about how that works and what that means. I would love to help you navigate that. Myself and uh, some other leaders will be out by the Connect desk. We'd help to navigate any questions or conversations you want to have. Um, we don't normally do announcements at this time, but I just want to put a couple things in front of you real quick just to be aware of. The first thing is this. A lot of you guys have asked about child dedications. We're going to do that in the month of May. Look in your bulletin uh, or online for that, that information. Uh, next month, it'll be in the bulletin. I don't think it is this month. Uh, the second thing is, uh, as we go into the summer, I would just encourage you, if you're not serving anywhere, uh, there's a big turnover when it comes to, to, to serving. It's not just the college students go home for the summer, but also recognition that some of you guys are traveling and saying, hey, I, I just can't serve. But there are some of you who are only going to be gone maybe a week or so and haven't served in kids or haven't broken down or haven't set up. And here's the reality. Every single week, it feels like it's the same people who are out there and it's only going to get hotter, right? And so when you look at them, number one, it's same people like, well, you're definitely houses bigger in heaven than most of you guys. But two, but two, the other side of it is like, man, I'm just like, you, you got to be tired. And so if uh, you're not uh, honestly, plan on traveling a terrible amount this summer, and you feel like you could commit to an every other week deal, that'd be super helpful for all of us to do this together. Uh, and then here's the other, the, the third thing, and I got a couple announcements uh, around it. Next week is Easter, if you didn't know, okay? So don't show up for this service at this time, meaning we're going to have an 8 o'clock, 9.30, and 11. Three services, all the same, all child care for five and under. Uh, that There's a Good Friday service, that's the same, same deal at 6.30 this Friday, five and under. Uh, that's a different service that will set us up for Easter together. But uh, if you haven't been baptized and you're going, I missed the baptism class, could I still, I really feel like I want to do, uh, be baptized this Easter. You haven't missed the mark. We would have preferred that you would have went to the class, but we, we are willing as elders to get together if you still want to be baptized. We have close to about 20 people being baptized over the course of those three services. So we're really excited for that. Um, and here's the last thing that I'll say revolving that. Uh, we showed you guys a card when we began the season of Lent. Here's what I'm going to say to you about this, okay? The four people that I'm honing in on in my neighborhood, my immediate neighbors, to come to uh, Easter service, one of them, the, these cards would not be helpful at all. They would be like, what am I going to do with this, right? They'd almost be like, feel like it's kind of weird. But there's another neighbor for sure, the one that's across the street from us. I just know the way he operates, a lot of opinions on him, but um, this card would be extremely helpful. I know he'll ask more questions. Where is it? When is it? This card would be immensely helpful. The other two, I, I don't know if it would be helpful. And so I try to put in front of us a recognition that um, this should matter. You know, the data is coming in from the survey we did last week, and we'll get we'll you know get you guys. Um, 
kind of caught up to speed once we can get everything together. But what we did gather, specifically in the areas of evangelism, you know, one of the stats was shown that 70% of our church hasn't invited anyone to church in the last year. 70% of our church. And, and this card, in a lot of ways, I think, at least for my own soul, is symbolic to remind us that evangelism matters. And it doesn't mean just bringing them to church, because a lot of you said that you still have uh, shared Jesus with someone. But we do believe Sunday is a great opportunity, because we live in a very religious culture, to go, hey, where are you going to church on Sunday? Now, if they go, they'll go somewhere else. As long as you go with them, then go with them. Do we believe the kingdom of God is at Redemption Peoria, and Jesus is going to specifically return to Centennial when we are here? Yes. Yes, we do. Okay? So, with that said, let me pray, and then we are going to jump in with where we are, and I'll catch us up to speed, okay? Father, thanks so much for who you are. Uh, we, we recognize our lives have been a little chaotic, you know, getting the kids crying in the back seat and getting us all in the car, uh, a whole week of, of work and taking care of our families. And so, we intentionally stop right now and sit under the authority of your word. We want to hear it. We want it to train us. We want to meditate on it. We even want to memorize it. Help us. Be with us now as we do that. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me show you some images to get us started. So here's an image of us uh, as mankind and trouble, okay? Um, This is everyday living. This is uh, the idea that depression might come towards you or anxiety might come towards you. A loss of life might come towards you. A loss of... um, Jeez, I don't know, a job, it's just trouble. Like the, the, the idea of existing as a human being, we recognize trouble comes towards us. That just is what it is, okay? Let me show you another image. This idea is the fact that trouble is within us. The first one is essentially unavoidable. The second one is understandable. We get it because um, this is the type of trouble that exists within us because we have sinned. We have brought this trouble upon ourselves. This isn't like the depression or the anxiety or just the, 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 the chaos that exists outside of us. But this is the fact that we have chosen to walk a path that is only for our harm. And this requires repentance. We can classify this as sin, right? This is the trouble that exists within us. But there's a third way to see our relationship with trouble, and that is us moving towards trouble. So if the first one's unavoidable, the second one's like understandable, the third one feels a little unintelligible. I mean, the recognition that we, as human beings, would move towards trouble, if I could just be honest, not for the sake of using crass language, is stupid. It it does not make sense that we would see a pocket of brokenness, and we would enter into that pocket of brokenness. It, It doesn't make sense that if we see someone who is marginalized, we see someone who has a, a life that could use help, we go towards that trouble. And to be honest with you, It does sound dumb if it wasn't for one little word, love. The only way that this makes sense is when it's pocketed in love, that we move towards our spouse, we move towards our kids, we move towards our friends, we move move towards those we don't even know who are in trouble. We enter in because of love, because of love. And so uh, what I tried to do two weeks ago, if you remember, is explain that that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He is entering into trouble. 
He said, if you guys remember the parable, that he is going to be like a seed that dies to bring forth life. That was our what? That is what Jesus is doing. That is what Jesus has been doing. Since the beginning of the year, we've watched Jesus over and over and over again enter into schemes, ideas, plans, and people over again, over again, over again, at nauseum, entering into their trouble because of love. That's what we've been seeing again and again and again. And that's the what, that's what Jesus has done. But we had to ask the question last week, why would he do that? If love is what motivates him, and what we found is, the gospel of John, it's because he's the good shepherd. He does it because the wolf wants you. And he stands between us and the wolf, and he takes the mauling. And because of that love in the what, then we see it in the why is the good shepherd. Today we get to explore the how he does that. How is he broken? How does he take the mauling? What does it look like? Now hear me when I say this. I was not raised Christian. I didn't get saved until I was in high school. And when I got saved and heard the story of Jesus, the account that we're going to read today in Luke 22 and 23, I thought it was crazy. And I looked around the church and we're like talking about it. Like, yeah, he was flogged and he was whipped in a crown of thorn. And I'm going, was, is this something like that normally happens to you guys? Why are we acting like this is just a normal deal? And I was, it was crazy to me. And so, so here's what I want to do. I want to take that story, that account of the how, that for some of you have grown calloused over your heart. That's like a brick of ice because you know it so well. And let the story melt that ice. Uh, in C.S. Lewis's um, book, The Silver Chair, um, it's in the, the Chronicles of Narnia series, if you've never read it, which is a great read. If you get, have kids, specifically with your kids, tons of symbolism in it. He's... In the silver chair, uh, this lion, Aslan, who's a representation of Jesus, lots to unpack there, um, is talking with this, this girl, Jill. And he's explaining to Jill that he's going to give her signs in how to find this certain prince, okay? So that's all you need to know. This Jesus figure is explaining, this lion's talking with, with this woman, Jill, and says, I'm going to give you these signs. But I want you to listen. When he explains that he's going to give these signs, he gives her a warning. They're on top of this mountain when he's telling her, here's what you're going to be looking for. They're on top of this mountain. Listen to the warning that Aslan gives. He says, here on the mountain, I've spoken to you clearly. I will not often do so down in Narnia. Here on the mountain, the air is clear and your mind is clear. As you drop down into Narnia, the air will thicken. Take great care that it does not confuse your mind. Remember, remember the signs. Aslan's encouragement or warning is, what I'm going to tell you right now makes sense. But you're going to leave here, and I, it, the air, the, I love the language, the air is going to thicken. It's going to be harder to remember. And so what I want to do is just warn you that down the mountain in Narnia, it's going to be more difficult, so you've got to stay focused. And if this is a story that, that stirs us, sometimes my job is to give you insights into the text, show you so that your mind can go, yes, that makes sense. Sometimes like our gut goes, oh Lord, I see what you're doing. But hear me when I say this, sometimes I just need to remind you. And this morning, the hope is that we would hear the voice of Aslan and we would go, that's what caused me to follow. And so if you're a believer in here, my prayer would be that you would hear this story through a new lens. And if you've never heard it before, if you're not a believer in here, this is the first time you've heard it. Here's what I need you to know. The story I'm about to give you, the account that we're about to lay down of how Jesus laid down his life is the story of our God. Our God did this. Luke chapter 22 is where we're going to start. The context is pretty simple. Um, Jesus 
um, is with his disciples, and as he's with his disciples, they keep falling asleep. He goes back and rebukes them, and as he does that, um, he's in conversation, and Judas comes up. What we're aware of in the text earlier, because we're going to pick it up in verse 47, what we're aware of uh, of the text earlier is the fact that um, that there's this conspiring going on to murder Jesus already. So I just want to read the passion of Jesus, passion of Jesus Christ, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you text in accordance to what the rest of the New Testament says about the man who's going through what we're about to read. Okay? That's all we're going to do. Luke 22, starting in verse 47. But even as Jesus said this, again, he's talking to his disciples, a crowd approached, led by uh, Judas, one of the 12 disciples. Judas walked over to Jesus to greet him with a kiss, but Jesus said, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? It's interesting if you read the the Matthew account. I'm reading out of uh, Luke, and it's going to be the New Living Translation, which is different than the ESV, which we normally use. But in the Matthew account, uh, when Judas comes up, as Jesus is talking with his disciples, he betrays him with a kiss. The kiss is uh, is signifying to the soldiers, this is the Jesus, right? And uh, Jesus responds in the Gospel of Matthew with, friend. He calls Judas friend. And actually, in John's gospel, the people go, which one of you is Jesus? And Jesus goes, I am he. And then they all fall down, okay? (laughs) I'm he. They all fall down, right? Good luck, guys. Have fun with that. It's like, Judas, you're on your own. I don't know what we're dealing with here. Uh, Verse 49. When the other disciples saw what was about to happen, they exclaimed, Lord, should we fight? We brought the swords, and one of them, this is Peter, struck at the high priest's slaves, slashing off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus spoke to the leading priests, the captains of the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him. Am I some dangerous revolutionary, he asked, that you come with swords and clubs to arrest me? Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I was there every day, but this is your moment. Listen to this. The time when the power of darkness reigns. So they arrested him and led him to the high priest's home, and Peter followed at a distance. Uh, The account ends up going on for a few verses that Peter ends up denying Jesus. But I want to keep the camera on Jesus for a little bit here. Because what Jesus declares to these people who come to arrest him, the high priest and these guards, he goes, listen, I've been at the temple. I've been there during the day. You saw me. But, man, this whole thing feels shady, right? You're coming at night. It's in secret. And he makes the declaration, not by accident. This is the moment. This is your time when the power of darkness reigns. This whole thing is capitulated in chapter 1 of the Gospel of John. When we are told that in Jesus, verse 4, in Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. Later on in verses 9 through 11, it's not that Jesus was the life and the life was the light of men. It says that the light has come. He's come to his own and his own did not receive him. They reject him. So now here is this double play on words. When Jesus is standing before his own people, he is the light. He's standing before the people who are of the darkness and his own people reject him. Jesus is still in charge. He's still in charge here. He's the one who brings the light. They think they have the moment. Listen as the text goes on. The narrative continues. It's important. We're, let's look back at, again in John 1 in a second. This is how the, the text goes. So the guards, okay, in charge of Jesus, began mocking and beating him. Just so you understand contextually, if you go back to verse 54, they're at the, uh, the high priest's home right now, okay? And so all the high priests are there. They're inside the high priest's home. The guards in charge of Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and said, prophesy to us. Who hit you that time? And they hurled all sorts of terrible insults at him. 
So here he is in the house. They blindfold him. They begin to hit him. They begin to mock him. They begin to make fun of him. Now, here's what's crazy about this. In that same account I just gave you in the Gospel of John chapter 1, when it says that he is the light, the way that the Gospel starts is this. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning. It's talking about Jesus. And then it says this. Through him all things were made, and nothing was made that was made. You can correlate this with Romans chapter 11, verse 36, which puts in front of us the simple idea, all things were made through him and for him. Here's what I'm saying. The idea that men would look at Jesus as he's blindfolded and begin to reverberate their vocal cords to hurl insults at Jesus was created by Jesus. The idea that words would come out of our mouth and the tongue would be used in the way that was made through Jesus. The, the idea that power would come from ligaments and muscles attached to a bone to bring your hand back and strike forward was Jesus' idea. And here are men doing this to Jesus. Let's continue with the text. At daybreak, so this goes on for a while. We don't know for sure how long. Um, it was obviously late when they were at the garden praying, right? But um, we don't know how late. I mean, late enough for his disciples to fall asleep we can assume with pretty good integrity that this went on for a couple of hours, these insults and slapping towards Jesus until eventually at daybreak, the elders of the people assembled, including the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law. So they're all coming together. They begin to ask Jesus some questions. Jesus was led before the high council and they said, tell us, are you the Messiah? But he replied, if I tell you, you won't believe me. And if I ask you a question, you won't answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated in the place of power at God's right hand. Verse 70. They all shouted, so you are claiming to be the Son of God. And he replied, you say that I am. Why do we need other witnesses, they said. We ourselves heard him say it. Let me just give you some context. Um, The people who are now questioning Jesus about who he is know the law really, really well. And we're told in Luke chapter 24, verse 27, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16, that all of the Old Testament is pointing towards Jesus. So if men who've memorized the first five books in the law know the law really well here, have the Son of God, the Messiah before them, and they wait for him to hear it, the whole thing is a mockery. If they knew the Old Testament well, they would see Jesus rightly. And hear me. Jesus is chill. He's got it in control. He knows who he is. He knows what the word says about him, and he knows they could see it. Oh, we ain't done. Chapter 23, verse 1. Then the entire council took Jesus to Pilate, the Roman governor. They began to state their case. This man has been leading our people astray by telling them not to pay their taxes to the Roman government. It's not true. By claiming he is the Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replied, you have said it. Pilate turned to the leading priests and to the crowd and said, I find nothing wrong with this man. Then they became insistent, but he is causing riots by his teaching wherever he goes all over Judea from Galilee to Jerusalem. In the gospel of John chapter 18 and 19, there's a longer interaction with this guy, Pilate. Pilate is this uh, authority figure over the land in which Jesus is in. And so Jesus is brought to Pilate by these high priests to go, listen, we got to figure it out. Put him in prison, kill him. We got to do something with him. So Jesus is interacting with Pilate and there's two predominant things that come of their conversation in the gospel of John. One, this brief conversation on truth. Like what truth is, how can we know? But there's this other bigger conversation on authority. And in the gospel of John, Jesus begins to lay out the fact that he has a kingdom that is not of this world. And yet here is Pilate 
who is um, investigating with Jesus. He's taking the high seats. We can be reminded in Matthew chapter 28, verse 17, that all authority has been given to Jesus. But Pilate thinks he's in charge. Like here is Pilate, the ruler of this land, and all authority is in Jesus. At any moment, he can call legions of angels, but Pilate thinks he's in charge. He's wrong. Oh, is he Galilean? If you can see there in verse 5, um, they become insistent, right? And they're causing, he's causing riots in all over Judea, Galilee, and Jerusalem. Pilate hears that and he goes, oh, okay, so he must be from Galilee. Oh, so he's uh, uh, Galilean, Pilate asked. When they said he was, Pilate sent him to Herod Antipas because Galilee was under Herod's jurisdiction. And Herod happened to be in Jerusalem at the time. Herod was delighted at the opportunity to see Jesus. Stop real quick. So, so Pilate um, says, okay, he's Galilean. There's another ruler that he can go see. I, I don't find anything wrong with him. Maybe he could. So he sends him to this guy, Herod, who happens to be in town a- a- at the time. Herod's super excited to see Jesus. So send him over. Here's why Herod is super excited to see Jesus. The opportunity to see Jesus because he had heard about him and had been hoping for a long time to see him perform a miracle. Here's another ruler. Has Jesus sent his way? And he's super excited to see the ruler of the universe because, and I quote, I want him to be a birthday clown and do a jig for me. Keep in mind, the one who stands before them is the visible image of the invisible God. All things are made by him. Thrones, dominions, rulers, powers, visible or invisible. It goes on to say in Colossians 1, which I'm quoting here in verses 15 through 17, that all things here, or he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now I need you to put your thinking caps on for a second, because we've talked about this word hold before, when it holds together. In verses 15 and 16 of Colossians 1, we're told that Jesus makes everything. That's what I just quoted to you. In verse 17, what it says is, he holds all things together. That word hold in Greek is in the perfect tense. Uh, In the perfect tense, it means something happened, and there are continual effects of that something happening. I.e., Jesus made everything, and he continues to hold everything together. Then and now. Right now, you don't implode because Jesus holds you together. And he stands before Herod as he holds all things together and he wants him to do a I got your nose gig. This is crazy. The, 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 the humility that Jesus has put in front of men as being the creator of all things, before all things. He's the head of the church. And here he stands. Verse 9. He asked Jesus question after question. This is Herod. But Jesus refused to answer. Meanwhile, the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law stood there shouting their accusations. Then Herod and his soldiers began mocking and ridiculing Jesus. Finally, they put a royal robe on him and sent him back to Pilate. And it's crazy, verse 12 mentions the fact that Herod and Pilate were enemies until that day they became friends. Verse 13, so just as what had happened was uh, Herod, all of his friends, continued the narrative of ridiculing Jesus. They put this royal robe on Jesus. It's not because they think he's a king. It's because they're mocking him, and they send him back to Pilate. Verse 13, then Pilate called together the leading priests and other religious leaders, get all these guys back together again, along with all the people, and he announced his verdict. You brought this man to be accusing him of leading a revolt. I've examined him thoroughly on this point in your presence and find him innocent. Herod came to the same conclusion and sent him back to me. 
Nothing this man has done calls for the death penalty. So I will have him flogged and then I will release him. In Matthew's gospel, we're told that Pilate's wife had a dream about Jesus. She calls him a righteous man and she says, leave this guy alone. So Pilate is going, listen, I'm not a believer. Herod's not a believer. But can we just acknowledge he's done nothing wrong? He's done nothing wrong. So here's their response in verse 18. Then a mighty roar rose from the crowd, and with one voice they shouted, Kill him and release Barabbas to us. If you don't know who Barabbas was, Barabbas was in prison for taking part of an insurrection in Jerusalem against the government and for murder. Pilate argued with them because he wanted to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify him. Crucify him. It is tradition at this moment that Pilate has the opportunity to release one of them, and the crowd cries out, release Barabbas. Barabbas, by the way, is part of an insurrection. By definition, it is a violent overtaking of the government and murder. And so they call out to release Barabbas. Now, um, what I find interesting in the, the narrative is what's not here is in chapter 19 of, and verse 15 of John's gospel, Pilate is dumbfounded by this moment and he goes, wait, what? You want me to crucify your king? And the people of God in that moment respond with, this is, oh, listen to this. In front of Jesus, we have no king but Caesar. Before Jesus, who all things were made through, made them, comes to his own, and they say, we don't want him. We don't want God as our king. We want earthly gods as our king. We want Caesar. We want Caesar. You know, I've heard... Um, multiple narratives and stuff that goes on with Barabbas. Um, but I want you to listen to this text and I kind of want to unpack some of the stuff because I, I need you to see this. Barabbas is released, but listen to this. Verse 22, for the third time he demanded, why, what crime has he committed? I have found no uh, reason to sentence him to death. So I will have him flogged and then I will release him. But the mob shouted louder and louder, demanding that Jesus be crucified and their voices prevailed. So Pilate sentenced him, sentenced Jesus to die. As they demanded, verse 25, as they had requested, he released Barabbas, the man in prison for insurrection and murder, but he turned Jesus over to them to do as they wished. Let's, let's roll back the clock real quick to January. Because here's, here, here's what we've got. Um, and, and you've probably heard, if you were raised in the church, a sermon on how we are Barabbas. We are the sinner. We are the one who, who should have been crucified. But just like Barabbas, Jesus took our place. And I want to say yes and amen to that. But I want you to look at the atrocity that is found in the fact that Jesus wasn't released. Not just that Barabbas was. The one who was sentenced to die. Let's go back to January. He's the one who had compassion on the widow of Nain when she lost her son. He's the one who was sentenced to die. They're walking down, caravan. Jesus sees this woman who had lost her place in culture, lost her son, and gives him back. And the language that was used is, had compassion on her. The, the one who was sentenced to die is the one who healed the blind man, and then on the back end cared for him. Healed somebody who was blind, and then defended him before the Pharisees. The one who was sentenced to die is the one who forgives the sinful woman as she comes weeping at his feet because of the brokenness of her sin. The one who was sentenced to die is the one who for 40 days endured suffering by fasting and embracing Satan. Let's go. He showed us that obedience matters and he didn't fail. He's the one who was sentenced to die. Not the murderer. Not the one who tried to overthrow the government violently. No, no, no. He's the one. We're not done. Let's keep going. Uh, he's the one who healed Jairus' daughter. Remember this? Uh, this, high, this ruler comes up and says, my daughter's sick. 
on his way to heal his daughter, is stopped with a woman who has an issue of blood, heals her, then gets to the girl, heals her. He's the one who is sentenced to die. He's the one who, who feeds 5,000 people, gives them bread, remember this, and then explains, I care about you physically. I do. I, I want you to live. I want to provide physical means to you, but I also care about you spiritually. And then he explains, I'm giving you physical bread, but I need you to know there's an eternal bread. I am the eternal bread. You want to live physically. I want you to live eternally. He does the same thing. If you go two chapters back, John preached on it. The woman at the well, he is ultimately the water. He's the spring. He's where life comes from. The the one who was sentenced to die is the one who bowed himself down, washed his disciples' feet, and showed himself to be a servant. This is the one who was sentenced to die. Not the violent one, not the murderer, not, listen, they can't find anything on him. Herod and Pilate are trying to figure it out. He is innocent. He's been nothing but compassionate. He has shown that love leaves room for intrusion. He's cared, he's cared, he's cared, he's cared. And you may think, this is insane. It doesn't make sense. What's going on? It's stupid. It's, it's unintell- unintelligible. It's foolish. He's moving towards trouble. That's dumb. Except for love. It only makes sense when love's there. Because he loves. But we ain't done. Verse 26. As they led Jesus away, a man named Simon, who was from Cyrene, happened to be coming in from the countryside. The soldier seized him and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large crowd trailed behind, including, uh, including many grief-stricken women. So Jesus is now carrying the cross. A man's coming in. Uh, he helps Jesus carry the cross. And there's this crazy interaction from verses 28 to 31 where Jesus, amidst carrying the cross, kind of encourages these women, brings these women together. It's crazy. You've got to read it. It's like, what are you doing? You're being crucified. Verse 32. Two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him. When they came to the place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross, and the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. Uh, What we don't get in this account here is ultimately Jesus is going to say, Father, why have you forsaken me, which we're going to unpack. But what I find interesting is we tend to paint this Jesus as diaper Jesus. He's up on the cross and he's got like this diaper thing on. That's not the case. Here he is completely nude. And the reason he's nude is because his garments are off to the side being gambled for to see who gets to keep them. The crazy, ironic part of not just Jesus creating everything is in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, it's, we're told that all the promises are God are yes and amen in Jesus. The fact that these men want something from Jesus, <laughs> they get on his suffering. Jesus gives everything away, everything he has, everything he owns. All of the promises of God are summed up, but we are bargaining for his clothes. They completely miss the true gift. We're not done. Verse 35, the crowd watched and the leaders scoffed. He saved others, they said. Let him save himself. If he is really God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers mocked him too by offering him a drink of sour wine. They called out to him, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. A sign was fastened above him with these words. This is the king of the Jews. All this is, of course, mockery. Verse 39, one of the criminals hanging beside him scoff. So you're the Messiah, are you? 
Prove it to yourself, or prove uh, by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. But the other criminal protested, don't you fear God even when you have been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes by this man, but the crimes by this man hasn't done anything wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you today you will be with me in paradise. This fat last very famous interaction. Here's Jesus um, between these two criminals, one obviously scoffing at him and the other asking, pleading for mercy. I can't help but think in Hebrews chapter one, verse three, that in him is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. That if we're going to want to know how would God act towards a sinner, we simply look at Jesus in this moment and recognize, as the book of Acts says, there is no other name by which we can be saved. So hear me when I say this, even on your deathbed, he wants you. It's not too late. If you would but repent and ask, if we can see how God feels, we see it here in Jesus. The exact radiance, the imprint of God's nature is found in Jesus. And here is a man on his deathbed on the cross going to die. And he's saying, return. Come to me. That's how deep that love is. Let's finish this out in verse 44. By this time, it was about noon, and darkness fell across the whole land until 3 o'clock. The light from the sun was gone, and suddenly the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn down the middle. Then Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. And with those words, he breathed his last. When the Roman governor, or the Roman overseer, uh, overseeing the execution, saw what had happened, he worshipped God and said, Surely this man was innocent. And when all the crowd that came to see the crucifixion saw what had happened, they went home with deep sorrow. Jesus dies. And that's the end of our narrative. Now, I want to track this narrative real quick. Because there's even a part in this part that, that's, that's missing a little bit. But let's, let's, let's go back and just look at what Jesus experienced, okay? Jesus is rejected by his own people and, and uh, chosen over Barabbas. Or, yeah, uh, chosen to die over Barabbas. Jesus shares rejection as he looks Peter in the face. It's not the account that we read. Jesus is rejected by Judas before this. Jesus even feels, according to the Gospel of John, rejected by his father. Why have you forsaken me? And in, in John chapter 19, verse 15, when I said that Pilate says, hey, you want to crucify your king, the declaration is we have no king. Jesus is rejected by his people. The account is rejection after rejection, like a boxer just takes it, takes it, takes it, and find his, finds his way to get back up again and again and again. And then he dies. Josh Butler, who is a pastor in Tempe, had a really, really great line. Because let's just say, for the sake of uh, talking through the passion of Christ, um, the Gospel of Luke ends right there. We have another chapter, but let's say the Gospel of Luke ends right there. I love how Josh Butler said it. He said, if we were to read the story of the passion of Christ and just read that, we may think that the Gospel isn't that Jesus is a lifeguard and comes out to save us, but rather he swims out to drown with us. For just to read the passion of Christ, it doesn't look like Jesus is a big hero at all. Here is Jesus. Hear me. He died. And it seems foolish. Love moved towards trouble. Now, look at verse 49. So verse 48 and 49, I think, are important for some poetic reasons. If you look at verse 48, what we find is the Roman guard before this sees Jesus, and he declares what Pilate declared, what Herod declared. This guy's innocent. He hasn't done anything wrong. And he's like grief-stricken. 
Well, then we get a count of all the other people who are watching this. Listen again. And when they all, when all the crowd came to see the crucifixion, saw what had happened, they went home, listen to the language, in deep sorrow. What have we done? This mimics Psalm 51, Genesis 3. What, what have we done? What have we done? What have we done? But verse 49 says this. Check this out. But Jesus' friends, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching. So follow the narrative. Verse 48, everyone goes home sorrowful, except his followers. They continue to stare. They're watching. What are they watching for? What are they waiting for? So I really love the art of preaching. Like my hope would be for all of us in our vocation that we, we see something, a craft that God has given us and gifted us in and whatever it is, and we want to be better at doing that craft. And my job predominantly is to, to um, teach for us at Redemption Peoria every single week, and I love it. And I, I think there's a lot of cool things about preaching I'd love to share sometime on a Sunday, but I'm not going to right now. But a part of trying to hone in on my, uh, on my craft is looking outside of white evangelicalism when it comes to preaching. And about three years ago, I fell in love with black preaching. I mean, like, I just love it, right? And some of my charismatic uh, roots drew me towards some of this, but there's guys that we wouldn't know inside the white evangelical world, right? Um, there's a guy named Moss. There's guys that, even a modern-day dude who's, um, I just was introduced to this year, Charlie Dates. Uh, a few of us got to hear him in Chicago. Continue to listen to him probably once a month. There's this, there's this swag about, I love it. I love how they break down the word. Uh, if you ever get a chance to listen to even Martin Luther King Jr.'s sermon, dude just gets it. Now, the reason I'm saying this is because um, every single year during this time, I go back and listen to a couple of the same sermons, but I always watch this one video uh, that is, you know, it's very well known. It got big in 2010, 2012. It's called It's Friday, and it's about Jesus and, and what's going on. And the sermon is by this guy named S.M. Lockridge. Okay, and he's preaching this. It's unfortunate that um, the sermon has been hijacked for this three-minute video. He also has a great sermon if you ever want to listen to S.M. Lockridge. It's called "This Is My King," and um, as as he's you know doing this whole deal, there's this part in the sermon that was taken and added to a video, and it became huge in the Christian world. And so every year, I want to quote this part of the sermon, but I'm always afraid Josh Miles or one of you guys is going to make fun of me because it's so overplayed and so cheesy. So I just said, "Forget it. I'm quoting it." Okay, now. Beware, because listen, S.M. Lockridge uh, stands for Shadrach Meshach Lockridge. You know what I'm saying? When your name is Shadrach Meshach, you can preach. You're like born out the womb. It's like this dude can preach. His name's Shadrach Meshach, okay? So I want to finish our time with what they're waiting for, what his followers in this moment are waiting for. And I will do my best to preach it like Shadrach did, but I doubt it. He passed away in the year 2000. He was a pastor uh, in San Diego from 53 to 93. Just a great guy. This is how it starts. It's Friday. Jesus is praying. Peter's asleeping. Judas is betraying. But Sunday's coming. It's Friday. Pilate's struggling. The council is conspiring. The crowd is vilifying. But they don't know that Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The disciples are running like sheep without a shepherd. Mary's crying. Peter's denying. But they don't know Sunday's a-coming. It's Friday. 
The Romans beat my Jesus. They robe him in scarlet. The crown, they crown him with thorns. But they don't know that Sunday's coming. It's Friday. See Jesus walking to Calvary, his blood dripping, his body stumbling, and his spirit burdened. But you see, it's only Friday. Sunday's coming. It's Friday, the world's winning, people are sinning and evil's grinning. It's Friday, the soldiers nail my Savior's hands to the cross. They nail my Savior's feet to the cross. And when they raise him up to next criminals, but it's Friday, it's Friday. Let me tell you something, Sunday's coming. It's Friday, the disciples are questioning what has happened to their king. And the Pharisees are celebrating that their scheming has been achieved. But they don't know it's Friday and Sunday's coming. It's Friday. He's hanging on the cross, feeling forsaken by his father, left alone and dying. Can nobody save him? Oh, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday, the earth trembles, the sky grows dark, my king yields his spirit. It's Friday, hope is lost, death has won, sin sin has conquered, and Satan's just a-laughing. It's Friday, Jesus is buried, a soldier stands guard, and a rock is rolled into place. But it's Friday, it's only Friday. Sunday's coming. I'll see you guys Friday night, let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the narrative that we forget all too often. We forget the words of Aslan as we go into the thickness of Narnia and we walk out of here and act like this narrative is not true, that you, being the exact embodiment of love, walked among us, not just seeing how you've interacted with so many people while you were here on this earth, but how you went to the cross And according to Philippians chapter 2, being in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And as you took on this form of a servant, in human form, you, you humbled yourself and learned obedience to the point of death, even death on the cross. We're mesmerized by this. And so Jesus, I would pray that you would keep your narrative, your death at the forefront of our mind, that this week would be a week of humbling. This week would be a week of following you, that we would enter into your brokenness. That as we come together on Friday to walk through the narrative again through readings and songs, that our heart would be affected all the while recognizing just a few days from now, Sunday's coming. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.